disciple John writes this in verse 19. He says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is gone after him. You see, there was something incredibly attractive and compelling and welcoming about Jesus. And another word to kind of sum up all of those character qualities is the word winsome. Jesus' way of living life and of reflecting God's heart to the world was winsome. And so that's the, uh, that's the title of our new series. I love this uh, slide that uh, Matt put together for us, very retro style. So if you see Matt, thank him for that. Um, but today we're going to be, be beginning a series that's kind of been a long time coming, uh, at least in my heart. So this, this topic has kind of been building in me for a number of years as our world and our U.S. cultures have steadily uh, become more divisive and polarized around a number of controversial issues involving all kinds of topics from race to immigration to economics to war, of course, human sexuality and gender, just to name a few. And while all these topics are kind of dominating our news cycles and storylines on social media, I've noticed that I've kind of become a slow mover on things. The older I get, the more I realize how nuanced and delicate a lot of these things are. And so I tend to keep my mouth shut and um, be in kind of observation mode a lot longer than I probably would have been in my younger years. I also grow increasingly more aware of the humanity of the people that I tend to disagree with. I become more aware that they are, are children of God, um, no less loved than I am, while also becoming increasingly more aware that I am a flawed person in need of God's grace more and more. And in the midst of a pretty chaotic last few years in America, I've also been aware of the number of people leaving and growing increasingly uh, disenfranchised with the church and organized religion. In Christianity, a, a recent Christianity Today article titled, Decline of Christianity Shows No Signs of Stopping, they reported the latest trends. Here's what they said. Currently, 64% of people say they are Christian, claim to be, <laughs> but nearly a third of those raised Christian eventually switched to none or nothing in particular, while only about 20% of those raised without religion become Christian. If that ratio of switching continues at a steady pace, then in roughly half a century, only about 46% of Americans will identify as Christian. The main reason is switching, Christians deciding they are not Christians anymore. This mostly happens to people between the ages of 15 and 29, according to the report, with an additional 7% of Christians disaffiliating from the faith after the age of 30. So I thought that quote was a ringing endorsement for Wellspring Community Church, because uh, our desire is to, to really hit that, that target um, age range. Man, 15 to 29, just creating a space where they can encounter and experience God. And I don't blame a lot of folks, honestly, when I look at those numbers. 
because kind of what the church in America has trotted out over the last 30 or so years has been riddled with dysfunction. Mega churches with celebrity pastors, the various scandals and abuses and cover-ups, finger-pointing and the judgmental spirit of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ has left a pretty poor taste in the mouth of so many. And when we open the papers or magazines or Twitter or X, whatever we call it these days, or turn on our TV, here's a sample of what we see. Whether it's people's hatred on display in the name of God or the, the code of silence around so much of the abuse or the podcast I shared, uh, I, I listened to, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill or the recent uh, show on FX, the Hillsong kind of collapse and corruption. And this whole sad state of affairs honestly just wrecks my heart. Because people desperately need Jesus. And I shared with you as I was listening to um, the Rise and Fall of Mar Mars Hill podcast, I was walking my dogs and, and I would just weep as I was listening to the, the recounting of staff people who uh, were there, or people who had attended that church and in the midst of all that now just walked away and have no interest in Christianity and it's, it's just so disheartening <laughs> because he's the hope people are looking for. But many of those who supposedly represent him are such a huge turnoff for a growing number of people. So many of those outside of the church never step foot in our doors. And so many who have grown up in the church are walking away with no intention of ever returning. And in recent years, I've also been spending an increased amount of time in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus' life, just growing in my love and my understanding and appreciation for Jesus, how he lived and loved and made room in his circle for all kinds of people to encounter him. It's been a blessing also to watch the show, The Chosen, if you've watched it, to kind of put a, a face and to some of the characters and the imagery of the stories that we're so familiar with, bringing them to life in fresh ways for me. And as I've watched that show in particular, I've been captured by the winsomeness of Jesus, how people were just drawn to him and loved to be around him. He was so attractive. Those who were seeking for answers were drawn to him. While those who already thought they had the answers generally weren't. So this storm has been brewing all around me. Our divisive culture, my growing compassion for people that I might have called enemies in the past. My own growing understanding of my flaws. And the swelling of appreciation for who Jesus is and how lost and hurting people were drawn to him. And so all this stuff has been going on, I think, in my heart just for a number of years. But it's, for whatever reason, it kind of started to come together here in the kind of the late spring, early summer. As, as some, you know, I just continue to see Christians around our country and even closer to home continuing to respond in unloving ways towards people that they disagree with. And it's been really discouraging for me. And it's forced me 
to get on my knees in prayer for one, but to go back to the scriptures again and to seek God and to seek his heart and to figure out why is this so upsetting for me? What, what's going on here that's just crushing my spirit? So after a lot of thoughts and prayers and discussions with leaders and friends that I respect, here's where I've landed. There's a lot of commands in the Bible, well over a thousand, and they cover all kinds of issues regarding the way that, that we as humanity are supposed to live and, and respond in a way that would honor and please God. But to have a grasp of how to live those out, we have to look at the life of Jesus. How did God in the flesh take all of those commands and interpret them in real time with a face-to-face -face interaction with one of his creation? Okay? That's where we have to begin. We always have to look at Jesus and take our cues from him. Because here's the deal. We could simply read a rule. We could open to an Old Testament book and see a particular command. Let me just use the example, do not commit adultery. Okay? You read that command, and that seems really cut and dry, black and white. You either have sex outside of your marriage relationship, or you don't. If you do, Leviticus 20.10 says this, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. And that seems pretty clear. Well, I suppose then if you don't commit adultery, then you pat yourself on the back about what a good and righteous person you are, especially compared to those other people. But then God put on flesh, and he came and he walked among his people in Israel about 2,000 years ago, and he walked into an oppressed people who were the subjects of Rome at the time and a very divisive people, a lot like our country today, who had a wide array of opinions about handling how to handle the various challenges that they faced as a nation. Some thought everyone should run into the desert and flee the culture to focus on God. Others conspired to overthrow the Romans by force. Still others thought that playing nice with Rome to garner some kind of power was better than having none at all. While others stayed connected to society, but got serious about their religion. This would be like the Pharisees in the Bible who, who thought, man, we're just going to make ourselves so holy that God will have to show favor on us. And Jesus entered that season of factions and differing opinions, and he said things like, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus takes the emphasis off of the outward surface level rule and points to the heart issue surrounding the command. And with this new interpretation, now many more people stand guilty of adultery before God including most of us, probably. 
And Jesus fleshes this out in John chapter 8 with the story of the adulterous woman. A woman is caught in the act of adultery and she's literally pulled out of bed and brought to where Jesus is teaching. The crowd's thinking to force him to have to carry out the death penalty as described in the Old Testament law. And they reach down to grab a stone, waiting for the word to carry out the sentence. Warming up the arm a little bit, right? Excited to draw some blood, maybe. Meet out some justice. And what did Jesus say to the crowd? What did he say? What's that? Those without sin cast the first stone. Hmm. Well, now things aren't so black and white, huh? I see a lot of people inside and outside of church who are stone throwers, or at least stone collectors. They think they are right on a particular issue, and they're disgusted by the thoughts, actions, and opinions of the others. And Jesus enters in, and he turns the tables, and he exposes the hypocrisy. Church people did not like Jesus. He was constantly turning the mirror back on them. He was constantly saying, hey, hey, stop looking around at everybody else and playing your comparison game about who's more right or wrong. Stay right here and get the log out of your eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's. And he was constantly hanging out with and raising up as examples of faith the very people that the Jews and the disciples were sure that they were better than. It was incredibly disorienting to hang out with Jesus. Not just for the Pharisees, but for the disciples as well. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. It's page 1385. Matthew 9, 1385. So this is Matthew writing kind of his own account of being called by Jesus. So we're going to start in verse 9. And just to give a little bit of background, too, Jesus had spent a lot of time in this town, Capernaum. So you know, Matthew had seen Jesus before. He'd, he'd heard some of his teachings. He was aware of who he was and what he'd been doing. This wasn't just a complete stranger coming up to him. As Jesus went on from there, starting in verse 9 of chapter 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's how the show The Chosen portrayed this scene. I remember like that scene, just one of the first things that really jumped out to me was that phrase, get used to different. <laughs> Everything that you thought you knew about God and how he operates and views people, be prepared. Be ready. What did you feel as you watched that in you? Can you describe any, any emotions you were having as you watched that? Yes, sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. Hopeful? Okay. Yeah. 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 So this tension, 
yeah, there's tension, right? Everybody's trying to figure out what's, what's going on here, man. <laughs> yeah. Piggyback on that, it's like everybody is unsure because everybody's thinking yeah, everybody's unsure except Jesus, right? Peter's unsure. Matthew's unsure, right? Me? Are you sure? Are you sure you want me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when left to ourselves, we would never choose some of the people that Jesus chooses. Right? As I was watching it, what was coming to my mind is that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. <laughs> you guys have to understand that Matthew was despised by all Jews. If you became a tax collector for Rome, you made a living off of robbing your own people. Right? You had a certain amount you had to collect for Rome, and then any money that you wanted to make for your salary, you just extracted from the people by just making them overpay and robbing them. In response to that, you were kicked out of the synagogue. So the Jewish leaders said, you cannot come to church anymore. You're kicked out. So if you're a tax collector, you're making the choice to pursue riches over your faith you're basically saying god screw you i'm just gonna go get get mine the disgrace of your choice extended to your family as well anybody connected or surrounded to you was also just despised and hated and they all suffered the consequences of your choices and you see that tension play out in the chosen between matthew and his parents right everybody hated you so imagine the honor of being chosen to follow Jesus, right? One of those other disciples thinking, man, how lucky am I to be on this team, right? But then hearing that your worst enemy, the person whose views and choices you despise the most. And can we just pause right there? And I want you just to close your eyes right now. And I want you to think about who is the person whose views and choices you despise? Who comes to mind for you? That person was being picked to be on the same team and treated as your equal. You guys can open your eyes. <laughs> Matthew's choices had banned him from church. And then Jesus goes over and picks this guy up and is like, yep, <laughs> that's the one. Plops him right down over here with the rest of the guys. That's who I want on my team. The best comparisons that I could think of is maybe if, you know, Jesus came to St. Joe and picked you to be on the team. And then he went downtown and he picked a drug dealer who was like actively trying to destroy people in your community. 
somebody that you would hate everything that they are about and what they are doing. And you'd be like, yep, come on, you're with us too. And then maybe you went down to this church that you'd kind of heard of that had a pastor that was maybe a little slimy, <laughs> robbing money from old ladies on the TV commercials saying you could be healed or you can get wealthy if you send, you know, 100 bucks my way or whatever. A slime ball, right? <laughs> and he walked into his church and he said, yep, I want you too. And could you imagine the discussions going on? What in the heck is he doing? What's he thinking? No way those folks were as qualified as you and I. So that's kind of the backdrop of the story. And then from there, right, it says, as we read, that, that Matthew throws this great party for Jesus. And he invites all of his tax, tax collector buddies, because those are the only friends that he has, right? This little fraternity of creeps. So what was it about Jesus that made lost and rebellious people feel comfortable around him? What gave Matthew the idea that Jesus was going to be excited about being at a party with all of his sinner friends? I think it's pretty cool that Matthew wanted his friends to be around the Savior. I bet he was thinking maybe they'll find him just as winsome as I do. And I love what Jesus said in verse 13 of the passage that we read. He said this, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We all have a lot to learn. Do you believe that? I know I do. Because I can tell you that I've missed God's heart. And I have misrepresented him time and time again throughout my life. Jesus had a way of engaging sinners that made them feel more seen, more welcomed, more loved and known rather than overlooked and judged, condemned and ostracized. Now hear this, while also not condoning their sin. Because our sin cost him everything. So he's very serious about that. And we're going to talk a lot more about that as well in the weeks to come, this ability that Jesus had to balance grace and truth and still be winsome. And over the course of this series, we're going to look at multiple interactions that Jesus had, sometimes with those in the margins, sometimes with those in authority, and those who were seeking truth. And we're going to examine the way that he built bridges of relationship and the winsome way his presence drew people to leave their old, broken way of living to repent and run to him. And all the while, we're going to be asking ourselves the question, is that the way I'm 
engaging the world. And my biggest concern with this series is not that people might disagree with me. In fact, I honestly kind of hope that some people do. Because I, I think it's good for us to wrestle sometimes with some previously long-held beliefs and really go to the word and say, is that really Jesus' heart? My greater concern is that I'll misrepresent God's heart for people. That's been my prayer for months. Is Jesus, I want to get this right, man. As best as I can, the flawed human that I am, I want to know your heart, and I want to know your heart for people. I want to be able to communicate that well in a way that honors you. So pray for me, please. <laughs> this isn't a series primarily about controversial topics as much as it is about the heart and the posture that we have towards those that we disagree with or that we may think that we are better than. So with that in mind, as we embark on this journey, I'm going to have us look at a couple of passages of Scripture to kind of be our guide. And the first one is one of my first pa uh, favorite passages from Philippians 2, 3. It's just a second part, and it simply says this, In humility, consider others better than yourself. I love it for its simplicity. <laughs> I hate it for what it means to me. Because <laughs> I'm a prideful person. In humility, consider others better than you. Not even equal than. Better than. Whew, that's a good starting point, right? Secondly, it's this parable in Luke 18. I'm just going to read it to you. It's verses 9 through 14 of Luke 18. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You guys, pride and self-righteousness are the opposite of winsomeness. To have the heart for people like Jesus did we have, to be, we have to learn to be more disgusted with our own sin than we are with the sins of others. More disgusted with our own sin than we are with the sins of others. 
And so as we come to the communion table today, we are reminded that this body and this blood is for you and me, the greatest of sinners. We need it, right? Because our hearts are far from him sometimes, right? Daily, I need to come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. It's not a day that goes by that I don't sin, that I'm not in desperate need of his grace. And throughout this series, man, it's God just saying, hey, I just want you to stay right here. Hold the mirror up to you. I've talked about in the past, like I'd love to be able to create a Bible where you have words on one side and a mirror on the other, every single page. <laughs> Read it, look at myself. Read it, look at myself, right? It'd be clunky, but... You know, maybe there'd be a market. I don't know. Guys, I'm going to pray. And um, the ushers will come and dismiss you by rows. You'll come up and take communion. You can tear the bread and dip it in the cup. If you need gluten-free, it'll be down on the far left side here. Okay? Um, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be challenging. It's going to rock us a little bit. So pray for yourself. Pray for me. Let's all really have Jesus's heart because this world desperately needs Jesus <laughs> not our opinions Heavenly Father thank you <laughs> thank you that you could you could see something good in a man like Matthew when nobody else could thank you that you saw something good in each one of us when maybe others didn't or we couldn't see it in ourselves God, we just we need you so badly. This world is desperate for you. And Lord, sometimes the ugliness in our hearts just gets in the way of people seeing that, and that needs to die. Help us to cling to that, that verse, God, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Jesus, let that be our posture, that we are in need of your sacrifice this morning as we take this, this bread and this juice. God, I pray that as we taste that, it would just be a, a sensory reminder of our desperate need for you. So speak to our hearts about whatever it is we need to hear this morning.